Hello everyone, my name is James O'Flaherty, and welcome to episode 14 of the Green Door Podcast. This is not typically how we start our episodes, but it has been an unusually long time since we released an episode, and I wanted to take a minute uh, to bring the listeners up to speed. First of all, thank you for your patience. We don't plan on waiting so long between episode releases in the future. Episode 15 should be much more timely. Uh, So thank you. Uh, Thanks for bearing with us. Uh, Secondly, this particular recording took a little longer uh, to edit together because it was wrought with uh, technical difficulties. Uh, Skype is a fickle technology, and we found that out um, in spades when we recorded this episode. Uh, And as a a consequence of that, uh, you'll see that there are some breaks in the conversation that I couldn't completely clean up. And so there's the explanation as to why. Uh, That's it. Welcome back. Without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Uh, We're very happy to be back. So here we go with episode 14 of the Green Door Podcast. On this episode of the Green Door Podcast... I'm making my way out across the frozen ice to meet with James and May for an epic discussion about Chapter 9, The Flight of the Noldor. We deal with some pretty harsh recording conditions, both imaginary and real. The three of us will break down Feanor's actions and motivations. We'll deliberate the difference between an explanation and an excuse. We'll debate which of Feanor's despicable acts was most unforgivable. We'll look at how Ungoliant met her doom, and we'll also dive into Galadriel's backstory, briefly discussing how Gimli's request put her in a hairy situation. All this and much, much more coming up right now. Oh, wow. James, May, finally, I found you. Um, the Helcaraxe is looking pretty spectacular, I have to say. Spectacular from in here, uh, inside the shelter. Ads, uh, we're really glad you found us and great to see you. May, um, can you make uh, a little room over there between the uh, seal blubber and the uh, pile of furs <laughs> um, for Ads, oh, yeah. to, Ads to set himself up there? Ads, looks like you got some firewood. I have, yeah. I tried to pick up a little bit as I uh, as I saw it on the way because, uh, well, we definitely need a fire. Yeah, no, we do, no doubt, we do. It's freezing. May, I want to point out to everybody that uh, we are set up in a in a Quincy style uh, shelter here that May and I have uh, dug out and built for the last few hours. This was all May's idea, uh, coming out here uh, to the middle of nowhere in the in the uh, frozen north. Um, <laughs> and the reason we decided to do it, though, May, was we said we, we'd like a little break in the weather, right? Yeah, that's right. Back home in Montreal. It's only been, <laughs> <laughs> so it's only been minus 30 every day. Oh, I don't crazy. know. Crazy. And so that's much crazy. snow. So much snow this year. Even for us, it's been a... So much. I, I had to go up on my roof and, and uh, there were I was up to my waist, which isn't that unusual. 
Um, but it's the third time I've done it in the last couple of weeks, and that is unusual. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've really been pounded by a ton of snow in Montreal. So we thought we'd come here to the uh, Hel Caraxe. Um, we've decided we don't really know how to say it, but that's what we're going with tonight, Hel Caraxe. <laughs> um, we decided to come here for the show tonight. Uh, we thought we'd set up a little shelter and all of our gear and a fire uh, and talk about an incredible chapter. So, Ads, why don't you get started lighting up that fire? Yeah, okay, we will do. While Ads does that, I would like to welcome everybody uh, to episode 13 of the Green Door podcast. And if you're a regular listener of the show or if you're brand new, uh, thank you for taking the time to find us and listen to us ramble about Tolkien and the Silmarillion as we walk through this book in uh, what is now the first episode of season two. Uh, May, Yay. you made an awesome video Yay. celebrating the beginning of season two. Thank you for doing that. It's on YouTube if uh, people haven't seen it yet. But uh, how are you guys feeling about the start of this season? May, you excited? So excited. So, so, so excited. So much. And I think we're starting season two with such a tremendous chapter that we're, you know, we're packing a punch with season two. It's going to take off and be amazing. It is. I agree. Ads, uh, season two, what can we look forward to? What should people know about season two in terms of social media? Uh, in terms of social media, well, we have uh, a Twitter, um, which is at the Green Door Pod. So come follow yeah, do us. Come and f- follow us on there for sure. Um, and we also have a really great and growing Facebook group, uh, the Green Door Podcast, mm-hmm. where at last count, um, I think we've got about 100 and, 180, 190 um, people in there. And just lots of great interaction, lots of great people that have become friends of the show. Um, so please come and say hi. Yeah, I, you know, Ads, that's really the... Twitter's great, and we love having followers there, but Facebook's become sort of our little home hole, hobbit hole community. For sure, uh, yeah. And yeah, you, you know, 180 friends, so please come join us there. Uh, and season two, uh, we hope everything is bigger and uh, sillier and better and more fun, so we're really looking forward to it. We sure up on that note. Ads, that's a nice fire, by the way, getting even warmer in here. Uh, it's incredible how warm you can be in uh, these kind of conditions if you're sheltered from the wind with a nice fire. James, just chuck us that last log there. Yeah, here you go, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. And okay. uh, we'll have to open up we a couple of thermoses, I think, and, uh, and pour some, some hot cocoa or uh, whatever it is that's in the, uh, the bottles over there. might warm your spirits from the inside. Uh, and as we do that, um, let's sort of set the stage for an, a really awesome chapter. It's, it's been a while since we talked Silmarillion. Uh, if you tuned in with us for our last episode, uh, which was episode 12 and a half, the Christmas special, uh, that took place a good six weeks ago now, I guess. Hey, guys? Yeah, it's a while, isn't it? Yeah, Two months, maybe even? Yeah, something like that. Uh, so it's been a long time. We, we're, uh, we're back in the chairs. It's, <laughs> it's a funny time of day. We're recording in an unusual slot. And uh, we're anxious to, to dive back in. We left you guys off at the end of the last chapter where Ungoliant and Melkor had sucked the trees dry, had left uh, Valinor in darkness and escaped. And this chapter starts up right there. And it's, it's a longer chapter than we've run into in a while. And it's packed with uh, action and uh, tragedy and uh, some really interesting stuff. So uh, let's, let's go from there. What happens, guys, uh, right after... Ungoliant and Melkor uh, escape from uh, sucking the life, uh, the light out of the two trees. 
as well. They, they head for their next target, or Melkor's next target, and they raid Feanor's vaults. Uh, Feanor's not there to, uh, to do anything about it, which is maybe a good thing uh, for him. Uh, because he probably would have met his end. But uh, while he's not there to defend it, his father and some of his kin and his beloved Silmarils are all taken from him. Um, were, were you surprised when you read that chapter, May? Were you, did this, was this a twist, a turn? Did you think that or see it coming that this would be the next move for Melkor? And um, when, you know, like as I read the chapter again as, as we came back through it, uh, I could sort of feel my blood boiling um, on Feanor's behalf. Uh, so, you know, what did you think about this sort of sequence of events? Well, it felt like the next logical step for uh, Melkor to take. Uh, he just laid waste to Valinor, and on his way out, why not just take the nicest jewels he could find. Sure, he's so got his, yeah, he's got his he, henchmen all swolled up and uh, he's not really afraid of anything at that point, so uh, strike while the iron's hot, right? Exactly, exactly. And he already knew of those Silmarils, he knew of Fanor because they had been hanging out prior to that. And uh, part of their exchanges led Fanor to rise up against uh, the Valar. Um... A bit like warm tongue, right? <laughs> so Big time. So Melkor knew, knew what to say, knew what seeds to plant, and just had Feanor fall into his trap. Yeah, like a, so like the sp like a spider and a fly. <laughs> yeah. Spider and a fly, yes. And, uh, so. and so, yeah, this, this leaves Feanor um, with motivation. It's something I want to talk about tonight. I don't know if we'll do it here, but uh, I do want to get into the difference between, uh, you know, uh, an explanation and an excuse for someone's actions. I yeah. Mean, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about a, a few different times, but I think it's relevant a lot in this chapter because um, I think it's easy to understand what drove Feanor in this chapter. And he does some just really terrible stuff. Uh, but for I, I, me, it's yeah. not easy to excuse what Feanor does in this chapter. No, I mean, I think, I think you, you can... You can emphasize a little bit with Feanor up to a point in the chapter. Absolutely. And then there is a certain act in which he goes well beyond um, the line. But at every other point before that, there is definitely an argument that could be made for him. Um, and I think if, if uh, I still have my father, luck luckily for me, and I'm going to knock wood because I love my dad. Um, yeah. So at 43 years old, I still have my dad who's not quite 70 yet. Um, but I wonder too, if, like, if I had lost my dad, uh, if if I'd I'd be even more able to empathize and relate to Feanor's rage, like that's the one thing I can really uh, grasp onto and say, yeah, I can really sort of see why he was so. What drove him to do a bunch of stuff? They, Melkor took his dad, and I'm close to my dad, and I love my dad. So like for me, that's a big deal. But uh, I imagine maybe that it, it would be even more relatable if I'd lost my dad, or if my dad had been taken from me, even worse. Mm. Um, you know, so, so for some people, that that must really touch close to home. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's a very powerful moment, right at the start of the chapter. Um, it made even more so, I think, because the one of the re or the reason Feanor isn't there to protect his father, to in his eyes, you know, look out for him, 
is because he's been summoned by the Velar. He, he, you know, he's he's already banished or, or to a certain extent, sort of grounded um, by them, and then he's been asked to sort of come come over and you know not be with his father and i think in the previous chapter we discussed how finway sort of refused out of principle to to come to yep. um the meeting so it's almost i think a kind of reverse uh you you catastrophe um you know it's a moment that sets the doom of the noldor um you know the act of killing his father kind of sets the the later events in motion no absolutely I, go ahead may i i think that the there's a a tipping point for me for me when i read this chapter um for fenor the tipping point is yes there's well he's upset that they're asking him to hand over the silmarils because they contain the light so he has to kill his darlings. He has to undo like his life's um, creation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's like strike number one. <laughs> strike number two, uh, his dad dies. Uh, strike number three, I think, is what drives him over the edge. It's the fact that the Valar are not taking action against Melkor. They're not actively pursuing him or seeking, not revenge, but like... Um, Retribution. Yes, you know, and I think I think that's what that's what snaps him. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just like okay, that's it. Like, and that's when he kind of decides to. He's starting to think about what Melkor said, and oh, it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know? The lies are spread, aren't they? I mean, he becomes right. he becomes sort of the voice piece for Melkor, and you know his his. <laughs> his speeches, etc. Yeah. yeah, his speeches, etc. You, you can just sort of hear Melkor sort of whispering in his ear um, as as he sort of puts out his views. I totally agree, Mel. Uh, mate, totally agree. Yeah, uh, it's 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 Melkor's, uh, like uh, May said at the beginning, his worm tongue like behavior that festers and grows in Feanor, and and his voice actually convinces the entire Noldor um, to leave. It's it's really yeah. it's really uh, Melkor's voice, uh, but let's let's not get too ahead of ourselves like we already did. Um, let's yeah, jump, we did. Let's jump back really quickly, uh, and before Feanor even knows uh, that his father's been killed, and that his uh, home raided and his vault uh, emptied, and the Silmarils stolen, before he knows any of that, uh, he's been summoned and is answering uh, questions about the Silmarils, and he's asked straight up. Uh, look, the trees are drained, the light has been taken, but you, um, and they should have really played to his ego a little more. You're so brilliant, Feanor. Look how brilliant you are. We're at your, you know, we're at your mercy because, uh, because of how smart you are in saving the light of the Silmarils. Um, mm. uh, but I digress. Uh, but they do say to him, the light of the Silmarils, uh, the light of the trees is in the Silmarils. Would you, would you let us have it back? You know, it's, uh, and, and Telkis, uh, Feanor sort of hesitates, and Tulkis immediately says, hey, whoa, what's going on? Who would refuse the request of Yavanna? Isn't it she who made the light to begin with? Like, who are you to keep her light? It's not even yours to keep. Um, right. And so, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of tension there in that scene. And I think it's really it interesting. To- it totally is. Uh, to note that he says uh, at one point, uh, because um, Feanor resists, and he says, well, 
you know, Yavanna can't remake the light of the trees. She says it's something she could have only done once. I'll never make the Silmarils again. Mm. Uh, that's something I can only do once. So, and, and Ole seems to be the only one who has any sort of compassion for him in that moment. Agreed. As Absolutely a, agreed. As a maker of Absolutely. things. Uh, Ole yeah. sort of gets it, and we can, we can see why. Um, but yeah, so Feanor's resistant, and uh, before he really even has time to, uh, to, to argue, debate, or, or uh, before we really find out what was going to happen, if, if the Valor, maybe they would have insisted. Um, uh, maybe they would have said, well, too bad we're going to take them. I doubt it, uh, but it's possible, because we don't get to find out the news that the Silmarils are stolen in that moment. Um, sort of shakes everything up and ends the debate because there's obviously no, no way he could hand them over at this point since he no longer uh, has them. But uh, in, in the discussion, May asked me a great question, I thought. Uh, she said, uh, you know, how, how come the, why do you think the Valar didn't just take them? Say, you know, we, this is Yavanna's light, we need it back, we need to remake the trees, or, or command him, you know, to maybe not take them by force, but command Feanor. Uh, mm. Isn't there an order of things? Aren't isn't Manway the high king? Isn't aren't the Valar a class above? Don't they? Isn't there like a hierarchy? And there is. And uh, you know, I, I suppose probably Manway could have decreed it or commanded it. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll pass it over to you, Ads. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Why do you think that uh, it was a request and not a uh, a command? Well, I mean, I think the buzzword here is probably free will. Mm. I think. Um, I think there has to be an element of free will in the decision-making uh, process. I bat another question straight back, though, to the two of you. Um, y- y- there is at least one of the Valar that knows that Finway has has met his end, because uh, Mandos says not the first um, when Feanor is talking about how his heart will be broken and I shall be slain first of all the Eldor in a man. And Mandos says, not the first. And at that point, he knows that Finway has died. You have to say, perhaps he's not the only one of the Valar that might know. That's not, uh, that's not out of the realms of possibility. So by knowing that Finway has been, been killed, there is certainly a chance that the reason for that is to take the Silmarils. You know, it would have been known that they would have been there as well. So are they actually testing Feanor? Do they already know that the Silmarils have gone and they're seeing what he would say nonetheless? Yeah, that's awesome, Ads. I, I hadn't really put two and two together there. And I, it's funny, when I read the uh, Not the First, um, I, I knew what he was saying and it still didn't occur to me that they were asking him for, that Mandos already knew that Feanor couldn't, couldn't um, fulfill the request anyways. No. My guess no. would be, and this is just my hunch, what I think, I have no reason um, textually and nothing I've read in, in any of the books to, to back this up, but I m- believe that Mandos kept that to himself. I don't think he shared a lot of his inf- inside information. And at that point, I'm not saying it's impossible that Manway knew. Manway should know a lot. He's the high king. But I think maybe he didn't. If he was asking, I think it was legit. It came across to me as a genu- genuine request, and even with that information, I still think it was a legitimate request that they were asking. Uh, yeah, that they were asking if he would give the Silmarils back um, for the light. I don't think they were testing him, but they very well could have been. May, what, what's your instinct on that? Well, um, if someone else was to know about the murder, it would have been Manway, 
because there's, I think he's all seeing, right? He sees everything everywhere from yeah, he sees, well, up on his mountain, he sees right? Furthest. So, um, so uh, if, if there's someone with the ability to know uh, or to have witnessed something firsthand would have been him, mm-hmm. like even if it's remotely. Mm-hmm. Now, as to like why they would test him, I'm not sure. Like what are they trying to get at just by testing his character? Like they already know what kind of guy he is, right? Um, yeah, I guess it could be an opportunity for redemption. They give a lot of... Manway's a big, a big uh, proponent for opportunities for redemption. True, but James, they, they absolutely make the point of saying that the decision that Feyenoord takes to say no, they make, they make the, the very clear point that things might have turned out differently if he had said yes irrespective of the fact that he couldn't actually have completed you know the task of giving the Silmarils to Yavanna you know what they i think do that... emphasize that it could have been different if he had been if he'd actually said yes yeah, I th- which i question i don't i don't understand Feyenoord's character I, i'm not sure whether he would have not done the things he did i think it was sort of drawing a parallel to Aule's situation where when asked he just handed over his creation um, and then all yeah. was forgiven, and his, you know, and, he, and Aule is is not a Melkor type character, even though they were very similar. Um, I think I think the idea is that it would have it would have been his his moment of release if he had said to them at that moment, "Sure, they're yours if you want them." Then maybe he doesn't swear a death oath to pursue them forever. Okay, yeah, no, I get I get that, but then it, Finway would still have been would still have died. Oh, yes. Tragedy still, for sure. And and, but that's at Morgoth's hands. You know, the, a lot of the bad that was done came at Feanor's hands. And maybe that's, that, a lot of that could have been avoided. Yeah, no, no I, I, do, I, do, I do take that. That's a good point, that actually his, his desire for the Silmarils would have been quenched by the fact that he would have given them up freely. Maybe. That's, that's one possibility anyways. Maybe not. He seemed pretty hell-bent. But then again, it's sort of a catch-22. He was so hell-bent... Um, that he would maybe never have been able to give them over freely. So, yeah, I just, I just found it because it does say uh, I found the, the section now. Um, the Silmarils had passed away, and all one it may seem whether Feanor had said yea or nay to Yavanna. Yet had he said yea at the first before the tidings came from Formenos, it may be that his after deeds would have been other than they were. But now the doom of the Noldor drew near. Yeah, so, by, I think. Yeah, I guess by by refusing a, the request of the of the Valar, that's like the keystone in, in a series of events. Like that was him, you know, finally sticking up his finger at them and saying, it, "It's us against you. You're the problem. Yeah. It's your fault." Um, yeah. Did you um? Did you guys pick up on the fact as well that uh, Fainor has this this thirst for the Silmarils? You know, he he holds them above. You would think everything, but actually, he holds his father above even the Silmarils, um, which I thought again was another another um, another key factor in in trying to form a defence for Feanor at that point. That actually, you know, he he loved his dad and he did love his dad, and I think he was maddened by the loss of his father. But yeah. Ashik actually. Um, brought up a really interesting point 
about Feyenoord. In a gif? Um, no, not in a gif. <laughs> Actually, it must not have been Ashik. It must have been someone else. Yeah, he only speaks in gifs. <laughs> but he, he, uh, he said, uh, it's interesting that the oath that he swears with his sons yeah. is only about the Silmarils. Nothing to do with vengeance or retribution for his father's death, which sort That's of maybe, maybe shows you where his priorities really lie. Yeah. Um, so, Ashik, shout out to you on that. I, I'd never thought of it that way before, but I think that's a really good point. I think that might be a character uh, indication on, on Feanor, the fact that after it all goes down, he loses his dad and his, and, his, uh, and his treasure. He really only swears to go after the treasure. He doesn't swear to avenge his father. Yeah. 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 Fe- well, Feanor's a d- He is a d- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't like him at the party, to be fair. He, was, he came across quite pretentious, didn't he? He did. He did. He had a, a hoity air about him. Yeah. Um, that's terrific. He, he had nice hair. <laughs> of course he had nice hair. He's a, a first-age elf. They all have nice hair. What is it, what is it with you and hair? Thorin? Oh, man. <laughs> no, Thorin was the beard. Oh, sorry, yeah. Thorin That's hair, hair, mate. That's no, hair. Technically, hair. that is still hair. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so uh, he refuses, but it doesn't really matter because uh, we find out that, uh, well, Dad and Silmarils are gone. So yeah, here we are. Um, Feanor is outraged, and he's so outraged. It's, it's funny. It seems like even he knows that his outrage might not last forever, and he certainly knows that the outrage of his people won't last forever. So he really um, does sort of a timely job of firing up the troops, right? That's his next step. That's his next move um, yeah. in the book we're reading. And uh, as, as we find out that um, sort of the proverbial poop has hit the fan, um, Feanor's quick to act. And with now the king dead uh, and a lot of people uh, who listen to his voice and will follow him, he sort of stands in front and gives a very, very rousing speech and convinces a lot of the Noldor that uh, the Valar are their enemy. They've been trying to keep the best parts of uh, Middle-earth for the second coming, the the men, the humans uh, that will be uh, coming and and keeping the elves out of Middle-earth, that they should go back. Uh, There's nothing worth staying uh, for in Valinor now that the light of the trees is gone, if they're going to live under moonlight anyways, why not go back uh, to Kuvianen, um, where they were living under m- moonlight and had uh, freedom and open space and uh, sort of their own realm? Well, regular listeners of the show will know that that tempered Gandalf lightning strike uh, means we have to make a correction, and the correction is uh, that word moonlight should have been starlight. And uh, I'm sure many of you picked up on that. I will also quickly give a shout out to a new Facebook member, Troy, uh, who pointed out that our Gandalf lightning strikes were overwhelmingly loud. And so in an effort to uh, fix that and keep Troy and his big rig on the roads of North America, uh, we're going to try to uh, adjust the levels. And if that doesn't work, we may change the sound effect entirely. Now, back to the conversation. And it's a can convincing I, argument, really. It, no, it really is. Can I add something at this point? Please because do. I, I'm denied about saying this because I know that, and I want to make it very clear that I am not saying that this is what the professor 
was thinking when he was when he was you know making making this this great story up but i did a lot of uh, history i i studied it at school I, I, when i went to university i read history as well and i was always fascinated by the second world war and the um the way the second world war started and how germany you know was punished after the first world war and then in 20 odd years went from almost nothing to this this huge country again this this huge superpower and that section in in the book about Feyenoord those speeches that he made <laughs> reminded me of the ones that Hitler made how he inflammatory yeah how he sort of sowed um the seeds of jealousy uh, of men and and doubts about the Valar but he did it in this really powerful way and Hitler was renowned obviously as this this amazing speaker mm-hmm. and how he would he would get across the urge to win back freedom for Germany how he wanted lands back that should have been Germany's that was taken away by the League of Nations etc etc and I know that's not what the professor is saying but my interpretation my first thought when I read that section was yeah wow he's a he's a such an impressive speaker that he is turning the Noldor to his way of thinking uh, in a way that you know we have seen past people do in history. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure those parallels um, that you you draw are, are you're not the first to draw them. And like you said, I don't the, the intention's not not uh, there by the professor, but that's no, that's the no. full complete world that he built. Is that uh, reality um, sort of imitates or, or or matches fiction in this case uh, over and over again because. Um, contextually, the things that that happen in the story are are very realistic. Uh, it's it's a very realistic uh, way to motivate people uh, to tell them that you know uh, they're being uh, taken advantage of, uh, to tell them that uh, there's better things being kept from them, that people are are trying to uh, you know belittle them and and uh, keep them down. And so it's a good way. And and he also calls you know he says and and leave uh, Tyrion for the cowards or something to that effect. He says yeah. at one point. You know, it's it's a, it's a great way to, to 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 just insinuate. Look, if you're not with me, then you're then you're nothing. You're 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 afraid, and you're you're not worth it, anyways. I don't want you to come. So it's it yeah. I think he's brilliant in the way he speaks, and uh, it's even said, uh, footnoted before they introduce his convincing uh, arguments that he's very silver tongued, and uh, people listen when he speaks. So he convinces a lot of the Noldor to follow him. Um, What's What's kind of scary, I find, is that his speech is rooted in anger and pride, and it's it's rooted in grief and anguish, you know, so all these negative emotions that he externalizes in such a passionate way, and he's able to inflame other people, you know what I mean? He's able to, like, sway them to, like, embark on this... Yeah. Rebellious Anger journey, journey you know? but they also just yeah. lost no, their king, true. right? They just yeah. lost their king. Yeah, and to to these people, losing your king is like losing losing extended family. It's like losing your grandfather figure. It's it's it touches touches home. So I think uh, I think they were easily motivated in that vein to to be angry th- and feel vengeful. But I think James, there's a key distinction as well, isn't there? That not everybody was convinced that. Yes, um, that right. that Feanor was going to be sort of the next king, shall we say? So he had he had his sort of his immediate family, but to be able to convince 
those that perhaps would have followed Finn Golfin to also and you know and the likes of Finn Golfin. You know, I know there's various connections with the various sons and, and things like that, but he convinced the majority of of the the, the Noldor to to leave, to leave, you know, the blessed realm. He did. Um, There's an unfortunate series of events there because Fingolfin had already sort of sworn uh, his own oath to Feanor yes. a couple of chapters ago and said basically, you know, uh, I, I will follow, you're my brother, brother's blood before everything, and I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Uh, paraphrased and taken and, and completely misquoted, but he swore his own oath um, to his yeah. half-brother. I thought I would take this opportunity to at least get the quote right, and it was from one chapter ago of The Darkening of Valinor on page 79. <clears throat> For Fingolfin held forth his hand, saying, As I promised, I do now. I release thee, and remember no grievance. Then Feanor took his hand in silence, but Fingolfin said, Half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart will I be. Thou shalt lead, and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. I hear thee, said Feanor. So be it. But they did not know the meaning that their words would bear. And so he felt compelled uh, to follow. Uh, and I think, it, or not I think, it, it mentions that he was also worried um, what would happen if he just let a bunch of the Noldor follow Feanor on this hell-bent mission to, to reclaim the Silmarils. I think he was worried for his people also, so he wanted sure. to be there as a shepherd as a, to take care. And it also mentions that more of the Noldor um, saw him as the next king, the replacement for um, Finway, than Feanor. More, more were going to mm. follow him. So by him, <clears throat> by him, I mean Fingolfin, by him uh, tagging along, this brought a whole host of Noldor that might not have been convinced. So now we have most of them um, who, you know, uh, aren't staying in Tyrion. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, if I can just add something to that, like Fingolfin going um, against his own wisdom, he does it, and I think it's a, it's a sign of a strong leader in the sense that, like, he doesn't do it for himself, he does it for the sake of his people. Yeah, that's a good and point. To, you know, to be there to defend them against, like, let's say, Feanor's abuse or manipulations. Bad or decisions, so, yeah. Mm. So, in a way, he sacrifices himself. So, he's the selfless leader in that respect, you know? You'll see that come back again, May. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for Fingolfin especially. But, yeah, it's a good point. To, it's a good time. Uh, Tanya, one of our awesome Facebook uh, participants and, and uh, listeners to the podcast, um, Tanya said, you know, you should point out some of the motivations of the people who leave. So at this point, we've got, we've got Feanor, uh, who's, who wants to leave Valinor and go to return to Middle-earth and pursue uh, his treasure and Melkor till the ends of the earth, Morgoth till the ends of the earth. And he's convinced a bunch of people to come with him. So his motivation and, and that of his seven sons um, is revenge and um, a, a quest. That's why they're leaving. And at this point, we, yeah. we now know that Fingolfin is sort of leaving uh, really against his own better judgment um, and, as May said, sort of unselfishly for the people. Um, we also have 
uh, Galadriel and Fingon, who are both mentioned. And, and I know there's a lot of names to pay attention to, but these are important ones. And Galadriel, it says, yearned to return to Middle-earth and rule a realm of her own. Uh, and that, uh, that idea was awakened in her mind by Feanor's passionate words. But she didn't really buy into this revenge quest oath thing. So she didn't participate in um, the swearing of the oath. She had sort of her own intentions, her own ambitions in setting out for, uh, for Middle-earth along with the Horde. And uh, Fingon as well. It says, uh, you know, Fingon sort of was, was also inspired by uh, Feanor's words, but didn't really like him and didn't, didn't um, buy into much of what he was selling. Just uh, uh, some of them were easy to convince because they did, the Noldor did love Middle-earth. And they did long to return to it. And even though Valinor was so beautiful, now with the light of the trees gone, many of them, um, like Galadriel and Fingon, I think, um, were e sort of easy to convince because they, it, it was a journey that the destination seemed really inviting to a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. De def no, def sorry, definitely, yes. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know I've got, you've got, I've got a few things to say about Galadriel, for example. Um, I, I think it is important. I think Tanya hit the hit the nail on the head in in her message earlier on that you know there are these big characters, these these big um, individuals that have such an important say later on in the book and in other books as well. You know when you talk about Gladriel and their motives for following the for following Feanor and and leaving the Blessed Realm. They're not all under the same um, under the same banner, you know. They, they all have their their own reasons, and that shows then in in how their stories develop later on. No, certainly, uh, and yeah, even even not just like on the way to Valinor, um, not all were as eager to as eager to leave, and and some left uh, more hastily than others, and and some even mm. turned around before making it the whole way. So. Uh, yeah, we're at the we're at the Exodus part. We're at, we're at the part where where Feanor's riled the troops, and now we're going to talk about an oath. And adds, I think that's a good cue for you. Okay, this is a really important um, part of the book because it basically this oath affects generations of uh, of people and ruins lives. So we're going to take our time and have our our very own super narrator extraordinaire. <laughs> Adam Hillier, that, no. that giggle is going to be in your intro for sure. Uh, Thanks, buddy, for you're that. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, then Feanor swore a terrible oath. His seven sons leapt straight away to his side and took the selfsame vow together, and red as blood shone their drawn swords in the glare of the torches. They swore an oath which none shall break and none should take, by the name even of Iluvatar, calling the everlasting dark upon them if they kept it not. And Manway they named in witness, and Varda, and the hallowed mountain of Teniquitil, vowing to pursue with vengeance and hatred to the ends of the world, Valar, demon, elf or man as yet unborn, or any creature, great or small, good or evil, the time should bring forth unto the end of days, whoso should hold or take or keep a Silmaril from their possession. What a crazy oath. It's so ridiculous. Man, it's, it's so over the top. 
Even yeah. I think I I think Metallica has a song called Kill 'em All. <laughs> or Seek and Destroy. And that's that's it. Kill 'em All. It's it's, <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's so over the top. It's, it's <laughs> such an overreaction because why the good? Why for touching? Like like I get that you want your toys back, but to, to <laughs> To hunt down and kill everybody who, who who touches your toys and everybody whose grandchildren for the from now till the end of time, you know, no matter what their intent is, that seems like a little bit of overkill to me. It's excessive, isn't it? Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. No, and and, and almost, to, you know, it's an impossibility that they would know. Surely that. Just the fact that Morgoth has them now means it's not going to work. You know, th- this is not possible because we cannot defeat, you cannot defeat um, one of the Valar. Um, it's just it's just crazy. It, it really is. And at that moment, even, it's so crazy that uh, even some of the Noldor who were maybe on board uh, take a step back and are like, whoa, wait a second, that's... Yeah, uh, pretty heavy because everybody um, certainly involved would take uh, life oaths and blood oaths like this very seriously. Uh, one thing I did want to point out, just a quick sidestep. Do you think it's a little odd that, um, not odd, but it's interesting to me that they are spitting and looking down their noses at the Valar at this point and calling them, you know, cowards and uh, uh, treating them as as uh, treacherous villains who are, are out to get the Noldor, uh, and, but swearing to them, you know, sw- swearing to Manwe yeah. and Varda yeah. and yeah. the yeah. yeah, I had the same reaction. I was like, what? <laughs> like, why would that yeah. mean anything to you at this point? Right. Um, but anyway, I digress. I guess that, that's, that, that's, that's a good spot. I guess that's part and parcel of swearing blood oaths is you need to include the, um, the high powers, right? I, so I, at this point, how how um, how corrupted is Fanor? Is for me, he's basically willing to kill good and evil, anything that stands in the way of his possessions. Right. So that sounds a lot like dragon sickness to me. Oh, mm. big time! He's he's fully oh, yeah, corrupted at this point. Oh, he's over the edge. You could hear yeah. Thorin. You could hear Thorin in there as well. So, yeah, you? he's he's mad. He's gone completely mad. He's. He's lost touch with with uh, with reality, you know. He's he's become an extremist. Oh yeah, he's he's see, he's seeing nothing but red. He absolutely is gone over the edge. He, it's madness. It's madness talking. Mm. With with grief, I mean, I think there is still there is still an element that he can't he can't probably uh, function because of what's happened to to Finway. Um, he he sort of, he it, it symbolizes um, Morgoth and Ungoliant earlier on as this sort of black darkness, and that in effect is what's descended onto to Feanor. You know, he's kind of in his own black darkness now, um, which is just getting deeper and deeper. Uh, okay, and so we had a little interruption there, but we're back in on the call. Technical difficulties. I think that's probably caused by the high winds out here um, in the Helcaraxe. What do you think, guys? Yeah, this this, yes. this grinding ice, um, it's not the most secure of places to uh, record, is it? 
That's what that noise is. It's the ice grinding. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't put my finger on it. Thank you, Ads. That's all right. Good then. Well, um, I, well as we dive back into it, I guess uh, the best place to dive back in is with the bad guys. Uh, Feanor is not a great guy, but that's not who I'm talking about. Um, while Feanor and the Noldor are swearing oaths and deciding to reclaim their Silmarils, well, the bad guys have escaped. Melkor and, or I should say Morgoth and Ungoliant uh, escape Valinor and they uh, start heading back to fortresses of old. And they do. Yeah, they, they're, they're, uh, it's time to pay up, so take it from there. Okay, well, yeah, the, you know, Morgoth, massive great spider who's already fat from having drained the trees. And, you know, they, they've escaped and they, they head across uh, the Hell Karakse and um, they head towards, effectively, Angban, where, where Morgoth had his, his sort of stronghold before. And he's trying to get away now. You know, he's, he, he's sort of done with Ungoliant. He doesn't need her anymore. She has served her purpose as far as, as he's concerned. But that pesky, massive, great spider um, is not so easy to uh, remove. No. And she, she's, you know, she's aware that, that, that he's got these, these jewels and he, he has to give up all of the jewels that he has, he has stolen from um, Feanor's sort of vaults apart from um, the ones that he holds grasped in his right hand, um, locked in a crystal casket, um, which, you know, is already burning into his hand, but he refuses to give these up. And, well, Ungolian isn't best pleased. No, uh, and I'll insert uh, a little chapter read right here. Now Morgoth was drawing near to the ruins of Angband, where his great western stronghold had been, and Ungoliant perceived his hope, and knew that here he would seek to escape from her. And she stayed him, demanding that he fulfill his promise. Blackheart, she said, I have done thy bidding, but I hunger still. What wouldst thou have more, said Morgoth? Dost thou desire all the world for thy belly? I did not vow to give thee that. I am its lord. Not so much, said Ungoliant. But thou hast a great treasure from Formanos. I will have that, yea, with both hands thou shalt give it. Uh, But then just to summarize a little bit, uh, he refuses to give over the Silmarils. Uh, He gives over everything else, all the other jewels, and she eats them up, but she wants more. And it continues. But Ungoliant had grown great, and he less by the power that had gone out of him. And she rose against him, and her cloud closed about him, and she enmeshed him in a web of clinging thongs to strangle him. Then Morgoth sent forth a terrible cry that echoed in the mountains. Therefore that region was called Lamoth. For the echoes of his voice dwelt there ever after, so that any who cried aloud in that land awoke them, and all the waste between the hills and the sea was filled with a clamor as of voices in anguish. The cry of Morgoth in that hour was the greatest 
and most dreadful that was ever heard in the northern world. The mountains shook, and the earth trembled, and the rocks were riven asunder. Deep in the forgotten places that cry was heard, far beneath the ruined halls of Angband, in the vaults to which the Valar, in the haste of their assault, had not descended. Balrogs lurked still, awaiting ever the return of their lord, and now they arose. When I was reading this the first time, I have to admit I definitely took uh, Morgoth's side um, over over sort of his his battle with Ungoliants, and I did quite like who came to rescue him. Amazing. Yeah, our first appearance of our children in the book. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> we affectionately refer to our children as Balrogs. All nine anybody's of them. wondering, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, no, that's it. it, it and it took, it took uh, Morgoth himself and a host of his, of his um, former allies who s- apparently are just lying in wait, uh, listening for him to call and rush out to his aid, um, which, which circles me back to um, why is there any Ang Band left? Why is it that when they, when they routed him, isn't it now like, you know, the Grand Canyon of Angband, where they just... Don't, don't start me on this one again. <laughs> don't get me started. Don't even get me started. I mean, I've even, I've even got a note on my book saying more incompetence when it comes to, <laughs> to the Valar. Hiding you Balrogs? Don't, don't, don't take me down this road. Okay, I won't. So they, they, uh, they're still there and they come and rescue him and they chase... Uh, Ungoliant away, and it and it sort of uh, <laughs> leaves her end open ended, which is interesting because, um, just as a quick aside, uh, I think it's interesting to note that I think the most fitting end for Ungoliant is certainly that she consumes herself, that she yeah. she finally her her hunger um, is so uh, driving uh, that she eventually consumes herself. Sorry to interrupt, but we were. Um, Interrupted several times during this recording session by technical difficulties, and this one I couldn't piece back together without this interruption to tell you about it. So back to the convo. You were you were saying that Ungoliant basically devoured herself, weren't you? Right. Uh, I, I was going to mention uh, that in the latest, uh, in the newest of the Tolkien released books, uh, Christopher put out. Um, which everybody has been talking about since it came out in the fall, the fall of Gondolin. Um, yeah. Tol- Tolkien actually toyed with the idea of having Eärendil slay Ungoliant, which yes. I just think would have brought a real different feel to when Sam is hold- Samwise Gamgee is mm. fighting one of Ungoliant's offspring, one of her ancestors in Shelob, and is holding the light of Eärendil in his hands when he, f- when he fights it. I think that would have carried such a nice weight to that scene. If he it would have tied a route. nice little nice little knot, wouldn't it? It would yeah, have, it you know, a little bow on top. Which he's very um, good at, Tolkien is. Um, but I, I still think the most fitting end for Ungoliant is definitely having her consume herself. So I'm, I'm glad he, he sort of left that in this, or that's what Christopher went with in the Silmarillion. Mm. Um, but it's, I, I, I do find it really interesting that there were other possibilities for how she uh, met her doom. I have to say, I've been, I've started to read... Uh, some of the the history of Middle Earth now, you know, I've been slowly sort of collecting them together, and I'm currently reading 
um, the re- the Return of the Shadow, all about the sort of the opening chapters of Lord of the Rings, and all of these fascinating sort of insights into how the Professor was was working his story out and how he he changed it so many times and you know could have gone this way didn't and went this way instead um it is it is amazing to sort of see behind the curtain yeah yeah ads why don't you dive into some galadriel talk then if you're gonna talk about how he changed his mind on things okay all right let me uh let me reach for unfinished tales then i i loved um how Galadriel appeared in this chapter. I love how she was just sort of subtly put in a few times. Um, it makes it very clear that you know she did not, um, she did not take the vow. She did not take the oath that um, Feanor and his his seven sons took. Um, and it was interesting to sort of look back and see how her role was was sort of created and how it developed over over time. Um, apparently, in the original story um of the rebellion she wasn't even a part of that you know her character hadn't actually been developed at that point so she was never in the original um chapter that tolkien produced um we then see that she is added and you know we we get the lines in the silmarillion about how she was eager for new lands and and for going to middle earth herself but we don't really see too much more and there's a couple of a couple of writings that Christopher mentions in Unfinished Tales um, concerning Galadriel's role. And the first one's an essay that was written uh, post Lord of the Rings, um, where Tolkien goes into quite a lot of detail about why Galadriel wanted to leave Valinor to govern lands of her own. It's sort of adding the the meat to the bones on what the Silmarillion mentions, but also goes into this sort of fantastic um, backstory involving her and Feanor. And I'll read from Unfinished Tales. I love this, by the way. Oh, this is amazing. (laughs) It says, Her hair was held a marvel unmatched. It was golden like the hair of her father and of her foremother, Indis, but richer and more radiant, for its gold was touched by some memory of the star-like silver of her mother, and the Eldor said that the light of the two trees, Laurelin and Telperion, had been snared in in her tresses. Many thought that this saying first gave to Feanor the thought of imprisoning and blending the light of the trees that later took shape in his hands, as the Silmarils, for Feanor beheld the hair of Galadriel with wonder and delight. He begged her three times for a tress, but Galadriel would not give him even one hair. These two kinsfolk, the greatest of the Eldor of Valinor, were unfriends forever. And I know, James, <laughs> you, you made the distinction, didn't you, about, about Gimli. So do you want to add that bit? I do. I want to stop on unfriends forever. I think that's <laughs> just the best thing ever. It's, it sounds so modern, actually. We're unfriends forever. It sounds like something like one of my high school students would say. Yeah. Uh, but I love it. Uh, unfriending from social media. Uh, but yes, uh, like we were speaking about earlier, how if Ungoliant had died at the hands of Eärendil, it would have lent a lot of weight to a scene from Lord of the Rings. Now we know that 
Galadriel was asked thrice uh, in the past, uh, and by somebody with way more uh, renown and esteem and prestige uh, in Elvish terms, uh, a way more important individual uh, than Gimli, uh, was refused the request. And now Gimli asks once uh, and gets not one, <laughs> not two, but three yeah. tresses of yeah. hair. Uh, that's almost like a shot uh, at Feanor, I think, you know? Totally. Um, can you imagine the reaction in Lothlorien? Uh, because a lot of the elves there, I, I would imagine some of the elves who live there would have known this history and would have known the request uh, of Feanor's that was denied. So when they find this out, <laughs> I mean, they'd be like, she did what? Say what? I know. I mean, I, 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 I said to you, didn't I, earlier on that um, I like the idea that Mandos goes over to the halls and sort of says, hey, <laughs> hey, um, dick, uh, you never guess what's just happened in Lothlorien. Um, I kind of, uh, I like the idea of that. <laughs> she, she gave three of her hairs to a dwarf. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but just, it just goes to show that, that her ability to read minds probably gives her the upper hand in the sense that she knew Fanor's heart, that he would do it for greed or just for his own personal, uh, you know, gain. Well, that's he wanted to, like, create something materialistic as opposed to Gimli just being maybe pure-hearted, like, okay, he's, like, star, well, that's, starstruck. Yeah. is like, oh, my God. Absolutely, <laughs> mate. And that, that's, hair. that's brilliant because... What it says in Unfinished Tales about about sort of the the background to what we kind of see in the Silmarillion is from her earliest years, she had a marvellous gift of insight into the minds of others, but judged them with mercy and understanding, and she withheld her goodwill from none save only Feanor. In him she perceived a darkness that she hated and feared, though she did not perceive that the shadow of the same evil had fallen upon the minds of all the Noldor and upon her own. And it goes on to sort of mention how she she fights fiercely against Feanor. Um, she doesn't agree with how he how he sort of proceeds, but she does have this, this burning desire um, to follow Feanor out of uh, the Blessed Realm into Middle-earth because she wants to... Um, she wants to have lands of her own. And that is then countered, according to Christopher Tolkien, by a very different story, a very different um, viewpoint that, that the professor was, was playing with in notes, possibly in his last notes before he died. So these were in the last month. Um, they may even be the last, the last sort of scribblings that he wrote on on about Middle-earth and Valinor, period. But this builds this wonderful story about the fact that Gladriel wanted to leave Valinor from quite a time before that. She wanted uh, to, you know, to have her land. She wanted to, to govern her own, her own sort of realms. Um, and she had absorbed all of what she was capable of, of receiving teachings from the, from the Valar. Um, and it talks about how she she actually goes to Aqualonde, where her her mother had come from, and she meets with uh, Celeborn, and they actually together decide to to leave, and they have a ship that's built, um, and 
as they are about to ask permission of the Valar to leave, then Feanor kicks off and, and everything that then happens. And so they just decide to go anyway. And so in this, in this sort of version that the professor was, was toying with, she's never even part of, of the revolt, um, but she goes nonetheless. Um, and, and Christopher goes on to say that um, the Silmarillion is evident that, that my father doubtless intended to do it may be noted here that Gladriel did not appear in the original story of the rebellion and flight of the Nordor, after which existed long before she did, and also, of course, that after her entry into the stories of the First Age, her actions could still be transformed radically, since the Silmarillion had not been published. The book as published was, however, formed from completed narratives, and I could not take into account merely projected revisions. Um hmm. I just found it fascinating. That's really cool. No, thank you, Ads. That's amazing, and I'm sure we're not the only ones who will find that fascinating, so thanks for taking us there. Pleasure. Um, yeah, Galadriel's a really popular character, a fascinating character, a strong character. Um, I, we know Tolkien you know, doesn't like women and can't write for women, but he seems to cre have created some really amazing ones, despite his uh, that awful, uh, <laughs> silly reputation that follows him around in some places. Uh, undeservedly, but she's she's arguably the greatest elf, isn't she? Yes, arguably the greatest elf. Although I know um, some some want to say names like Fingolfin and and Finrod, um, but you have to include Galadriel in that conversation. I think. Yeah. Cool. Where do we move Good on stuff. from there, guys? You want to talk about uh, how? or what happens uh, next for the Noldor as they try to leave Valinor? Because I think that's where we're at. Okay. Some pretty heavy stuff it. coming our way, yeah. So that's the next step. Once Feanor um, has riled up enough of the people and sworn sons to oaths and has uh, Fingolfin and his followers uh, on his heels... They start making their way out of Valinor. And at this point, the Valar let them go. Uh, it's noted that uh, they, as much as um, the elves were free to come, they're also free to leave, uh, and they won't hinder their exit, uh, which some may say um, is a non-move, right, Ads? Manway is just sort of not doing anything at this point. Yes, yeah. And I actually kind of, agree with it. It kind of supports, in a way, Feanor's accusations as well doesn't it but i agree i mean i don't find that a bad move by the valar at this point no and, and forbidding them leaving would have only lent weight to the lies that melkor had spread in feanor's ear that the that the uh the valar were keeping middle earth from from them right yeah so to forbid yeah. forbid them from leaving probably would have only uh made things worse so i don't know if they could have gotten worse but they wouldn't have made things better i don't think uh, but they don't do that, and they let Feanor and the Noldor uh, leave. But, you know, I, I wonder, actually, how did they think they were going to leave? I guess they thought, I guess the, the assumption was they were going to march their way out through the north and through the Helcaraxe, over the Helcaraxe, right, where we are yeah, now. Yeah, but I also think there's an element of that decision-making from the Valar that I don't think they, they believe that, that Feanor can actually follow through with his you know, his assertions, I'm not sure that they believe he can actually raise the support to then actually leave with the numbers that he was talking about. No, um, you're right. It says that, in fact. It says they didn't think he'd be able to um, keep 
the interest in the ear of the Noldor uh, to get them to leave. You're, you're yeah. correct on that point for sure, um, but they were wrong. Uh, and they I, don't, were. I certainly don't think they expected uh, the tactics that they chose in leaving because, in fact, uh, they realized that the march um, out of Valinor and the long way around to the north where the sea is narrow and the ice um, is, is long uh, is, is very treacherous and dangerous and, and, uh, and will cause a lot of hardships. So they go to ask their friends, um, the Teleri, to lend them ships. And here's, yes. here's to me, one of the worst things that they do um, happens in, uh, comes from the conversation right at the beginning of, of when they ask for the ships and, and are told, um, listen, like the Silmarils were to you, Feanor, those ships are to us. We'll never build their like again. The sails were woven by our, by, by our, our wives and our daughters. Uh, they're dear to us, and we wouldn't sell them or, or give them to anyone. They're precious, and they stay with us. So they refuse, they refuse the request. Because of that, Feanor decides, well, too bad for you. I'm going to take them by force. And yeah. sure enough, um, because Feanor and his followers are a little ahead in the uh, march, they get to the Teleri first to have this conversation, and a fight breaks out. And by the time Fingolfin and his followers, the, the greater number of Noldor, arrive, um, there's a battle between the Teleri and the Noldor. And um, the, you know, the backup arrives, and the Noldor win the fight and basically slay a bunch of their kin and steal their ships. Shocking. Um, yeah, forever known as the kin slaying, a, a tragic event that I was saying to May in, in one of our uh, threads back and forth, to me, is, is Feanor's defining um, action. Even though he built the Silmarils, uh, made the Silmarils, crafted them, to me, that's, that's his defining action, which says a lot. It does, doesn't it? And this is the moment you lose Feanor. This is the moment that any defense of Feanor is is you know it's impossible to now to now argue in my view he he has done an unspeakable act he has he has effectively he's 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 basically acted in a way that he found such an affront when he was asked to give up his creation his silmarils yes. back back at the start of the chapter by the valar yeah. it's now roles reversed he is the Valar asking the Teleri to give up their greatest creation, you know, the, the white ships. And when he doesn't get his way, he then acts in a way that he accused the Valar of, uh, you know, of acting if he had had to give up the Silmarils. You know, you will find me slain. And um, I just think it's shocking. Very well put, Ants. Very well put. I, I felt the same way too. I thought it was uh, ironic that um, that the same situation should be echoed further down the road. But this time, the person that's being denied what they want like acts differently. So first, the Valars are being denied the Silmarils, and they act passively. Yes. You know, it's like non-violence. And then we get the opposite reaction from Feanor, who's being denied the boats, and he acts with action, uh, with, with violence. I mean, we, we do assume, don't we? We do assume that if the Silmarils had not been taken by, by Morgoth, the Valar wouldn't have acted forcefully. We are, do we agree, well, I, do we I, agree I, that? 
Yeah, well, I don't see. Yeah, I don't see the Valars physically uh, harming him. You know what I mean? Yes. Like I, 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 it would be out of character for them to do that. Would they have physically removed the Silmarils though? Because it was taken out of their. You know that that wasn't actually an action that they had to consider taking because of what happened afterwards. But in my view, they wouldn't have acted forcefully if he had said no they would have accepted that. I agree, except yeah. maybe Tulkis. He would have had to be convinced. I'm not sure. I mean, Tulkis was pretty keen on... on... Yeah, Tulkis wanted to go get Melkor a bunch of times too, yeah. but Manway was like, no, no, that's not what we do. We don't interfere. See, I'm with James. I think Manway would have had the deciding, the deciding vote there and it would have needed Feanor to give up the Silmarils freely for, for them to have done what they wanted to do with, with replenishing the trees. Um, the the massive difference, obviously, with Feanor and the ships is when he, you know, may, as you put it, is when he didn't get his own way, he then took it forcibly and to the to the point of actually killing his own kin. Um, Brutal. So is, the, is, this, is this kin slaying, is this the first time that elves turn... On each other? Like, is this the first time, like, an elf dies at the hand of an elf? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is when, like, the halls of Mandos start getting crowded, because until now... They were mostly empty. It's pretty empty. Yeah, Mandos right. is good work cut out now. <laughs> and that's a, that's a key distinction as well, because when the fight starts between uh, the Noldor and the Teleri, it actually refers to the fact that they tried to take the boats. They were on the boats... And the Teleri um, are described as sort of throwing them overboard. So right. at that point, the most the Teleri did was just to throw them off the boats physically. It was then that the Noldor started to actually physically kill. Slay them. Yeah, yeah. to slay them. And then both sides, you know, received, received um, casualties. But the difference was the Noldor had the swords and the Teleri had the, the bows. Right. Yeah, sort of a an arms advantage. Hey, mm. it's interesting. I just sort of realized the first two elves, in theory, to to uh, be in Mandos's halls, um, are a reunited married couple. Finway gets reunited with Muriel. Right? She would have been there when she passed from her childbirth experience, and then Finway gets slaughtered by Melkor and and would have joined her there. No. Right. Yeah. That's sort yeah, of nice. She refused to come back, didn't she? Yeah, that's sort of nice. Yeah. I'm looking for something nice <laughs> you, to say about you, this part you of got, the book. You got married to who? <laughs> <laughs> How's Feanor? Yeah. Uh, let's yeah. talk about yeah. something else. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. Um, but yes, so uh, there's not a lot of highlights or nice things to say about this part of the book, so I was looking for a, a spot of sunshine. Um, but yeah, the the uh, the kin slaying is an awful event, a tragic event, um, and it's you know what it's it, in the end it's not even that worthwhile because most of they oh. don't get enough boats. He's gone again. Um, oh, oh you, mate, you got me, guys. You're back. You're there. I can yeah. hear you now. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, they don't get enough boats uh, to make the voyage that they want to make. Most of them have to walk anyways. So really, it's 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 a tragic event that's pretty pretty much in vain. 
Uh, and they, yeah. they set out with some of the boats and then a bunch of them walking. And this, uh, at this point, after the kinslaying, um, they get a warning from the Valar. Mandos himself shows up. Um, oh, brilliant. Yeah, and this part of the book is, is pretty amazing. Adds, uh, I didn't tell you this before, but I'm going to get you to read um, that part of it. And if you don't have it handy, that's okay. We'll plug it in afterwards in post-production. Now I've got it here. This is, this is one of my favorite parts of the story so far. I love this section. So Mandos appears as this dark figure standing high upon a rock that looks out upon the shore, which just in itself is an amazing um, image. And he says the following, Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. On the house of Feanor, the wrath of the Valar, lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them, and yet betray them, and ever snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn, that they begin well." And by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason, shall this come to pass. The disposed shall they be for ever. Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of a man. For blood ye shall render blood, and beyond a man ye shall dwell in death's shadow. For though Aru appointed to you to die not in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, Yet slain ye may be, and slain you shall be, by weapon, and by torment, and by grief. And your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide, and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you. And those that endure in Middle-earth, and come not to Mandos, shall grow weary of the world, as with a great burden and shall wane, and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. The Valar have spoken. Yikes. Ouch. Uh, he's basically, uh, the, I guess, word of the kinslaying gets, gets uh, back to the Valar, and I, I guess that's enough. They say, listen, uh, the, uh, the Mandos is sent. Um, I, I, I guess he's sent. These sounds like, sounds like uh, Manway's... Um, words mm. and um, with, with a great warning turn back or else that's it turn back or else turn back yeah. now or else face the consequences of your actions now or it's going to be worse um, sounds like a, a mom and dad right that's what they always say tell me the truth now or else it's going to be worse for you later when I find out what really happened it does, and it also it, it describes how it describes how the elves you know in the Lord of the Rings I, I used to not quite understand fully the idea of the elves waning. So, you know, why are they leaving uh, Middle-earth? Is when you read the Silmarillion, you see the backstory, and you see the, the these these paragraphs here, and to grow weary of the world as if with a great burden um, and shall wane. That's why, because of Mandos, mm-hmm. because of his, his, um, his comments stood on that rock overlooking... The Noldor. He saw it coming. He yeah. had some really three ages worth deep of uh, foresight. So, uh, no, it's, and, and the warning is actually heeded by some. 
Yes. Um, at that point, there's there's enough guilt and enough doubt to send back uh, Finarfin and some of his followers. And if I'm not mistaken, at this point as well, um, it, it doesn't say so, but I, I, you have to think that the Fingolfins and Finrods of the group are, are having their own doubts and, and that, you know, uh, the, the, the trust and the, um, the loyalty for Feanor as a leader is just about all gone at this point, I would imagine. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and it says just about that in that uh, Feanor overhears whisperings and, and backtalk and uh, people are starting to, to, to doubt his leadership and not want to follow. And he's so mad at this point that he, he comes up with a brand new plan and uh, takes the stolen ships and abandons um, those who are still left with him, leaves them there, takes, takes his most faithful, sneaks away uh, during a, a great windstorm, uh, and leaves, um, you know, his his kin, the ones he didn't slay, leaves the Noldor who were who were with him and following him um, to die, and takes the ships, uh, sails them across the sea because it's easier and faster, does make it to Middle Earth, sets foot there, and here's here's what I was saying earlier. That I think I know the kin slaying is is awful and terrible, and taking life is 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 horrible, but in terms of of Feanor's character, knowing what he knows about the Silmaril is a Silmarils as a craftsman, mm. the fact that he burns the ships so that not only can no one else use them, but uh, not, not only can his friends not follow him, but now no one could ever use those ships ever again. They're gone from the world. I don't know. To me, that's just, just about on par, if not worse. That and the fact that, okay, it's one thing to kill um, the Tellery, but it's another thing to turn on your own people who supported you on your quest you know so he abandons like you say he abandons his people to die on the frozen shores while he escapes with a handful of of people you know it's for me i think there's like a note in my margin i am like oh my god what (laughs) like it, it was just unbelievable that he sunk to that level of yeah. rottenness <laughs> there's know? like there's like a level that you think you've reached the bottom and yeah. then he then he finds another one um, he's just yeah. so dirty he's just so uh, he's such so despicable you're a monster your heart's an empty hole your brain is full of spiders you've got garlic in your soul i wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. Yeah, he's a real rotter, that Feanor. Hey, you guys know who Thurl Ravenscroft is? Sorry, I get distracted. Sorry, but at this point, Fingolfin's motivation to get the Middle-earth changes. And now he's no longer worried about um, what, what Feanor is going to do as a leader and mm. keeping tabs on his people. Now he just wants to see Feanor again. He wants a face-to-face with this backstabbing, treacherous villain who abandoned him to die. And yeah. that, that drives him to cross the Helcarax along with uh, Helcaraxae along with uh, Galadriel and Finrod. Um, Galadriel, we, we don't really hear much more about what's driving her at that point, and Finrod either. But I have to imagine that the two of them um, are sort of uh, along for the ride, feeling committed, and not wanting to turn back. Um, I think they've made they've made their decision. Yeah. They don't agree with with Feanor, but they've made their decision to leave the Blessed Realm 
to to strive out into Middle Earth. Um, certainly, right. I think that's Galadriel's role. I agree, though. Fingolfin, I think, is is there going <laughs> right? We need to meet again. Um, yeah, I want to see you again. And it also mentions makes mention that uh, they didn't want to re- necessarily. A lot of them didn't want to return to face the Valar because their hands weren't completely clean in the Kinslaying. Like Feanor no. didn't didn't do that all by himself. Um, so they knew there were going to be consequences, and freedom and crossing the Helcaraxe apparently was was uh, a better option. And so they continued on, and even the second group of Noldor eventually make it. Not only does Feanor steal boats and bring a group across of you know his seven sons and his most um, you know faithful uh, loyal Noldor, but also uh, Galadriel and Finrod and Fingolfin and a host of Noldor elves make it across. Now, it's noted that a bunch of them die along the way, which I think yeah. is really interesting, because I don't know what they die of. It just, we just found out that it just said a couple of sentences ago in the book that elves can't die of anything other than being slain in battle, and then you know, you know, not sickness or anything like that. So I guess they, but I guess they can freeze to death. I guess, I guess that's another category. Well, I have a theory. Um, maybe they fell through the ice. And we're swept away by the current. Oh, that's possible. Yeah, that's, it physical, that's a physical death. Good call, May. Nice find. That makes a lot I'm of sense. I'm just worried about the fire that we've built. You know, I just don't want it to burn through the ice <laughs> where we're camping. So. No, no, fire burns up. We're okay. <laughs> Aren't Canadians born from uh, from water anyway? They don't. They come out through the uh, the ice holes. Did you just call me an ice hole? <laughs> yeah, I did just call you an asshole. <laughs> uh, did you guys spot the very last, um, the very last sentence in the in the book as well, which is one of Tolkien's, you know, quite common things. He preempts something uh, that's coming. He's so funny that way. I, I, yes, of course. With the, well, I mean, go ahead and, and please read the last one. But I, I did make note of this myself as well. As usual, add same page. But go ahead and, and uh, read that last line. Well, I was just, yeah, small love for Feanor, his sons, had those that marched at last behind him and blew their trumpets in Middle-earth at the first rising of the moon. The moon? What? We haven't had a moon. <laughs> a little foreshadowing? Where's the moon? A moon shadow? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so that, kind of... that comes in a couple of chapters. Yeah, he's really good at that. A nice little cliffhanger to, uh, to lead you on to the next. Um, but, uh, wow, guys, did we make it through that chapter, or at least most of the way? I think we did. Well done. So, uh, we made it through most of the chapter, and we've had, uh, I think, a couple of good sidetracks. And speaking of sidesteps and sidetracks, I think it's time to, to get May to chime in on the parts of the chapter that reminded her of mm, things. Norse things other and stuff. other tropes, yeah. and, and uh, as an <laughs> author and as a, as a fan of fantasy... Um, sort of where did your mind go and, and uh, what kind of stuff did you want to point out about this chapter for us, May? Okay, so in this chapter, a common theme is that evil destroys itself. And we see this between Angoliat and Melkor. So those two allies end up just fighting each other and the spider maybe, maybe not, maybe consumes herself. Uh, we also see Feanor, who's a little baddie, um, spiral downward and turn on his kin uh, with his escape with the boat and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So 
so uh, so that's one of the themes that is recurrent in Tolkien's work. Um, a, a trope in this chapter, which I found is like a common trope like throughout mythology or like storytelling in general or in just the experience of being human as you grow up, as you hit the, you know, terrible twos or the F and fours or again, teenage years, (laughs) (laughs) you know, rebellion against, (laughs) yeah, yeah, the whole thing. It's just, it's just part of human nature, you know, rebellion against authority. Um, so in this case, uh, Feanor is rebelling against the Valar as he perceives them as being kind of a, um, like a, uh, how can I say this guy's help me out? <laughs> he perceives them to be a, the higher up on the hierarchy. And when they fail to provide for him and his people, then he decides to rebel and, and leave the blessed realms. Yeah. Um, that is such so, a teenager thing to do too. Blame others for your, you know, for the stuff that, for your problems. That is so, that's so teenagery. Yeah, yes, and and you know, I mean, not all teenagers go through the same angst and whatnot, you know. But I mean, it's not rare to see teenagers slamming the front door and just like leaving for a couple of <laughs> hours or like maybe a few days, you know. So it's that kind of like that quest for independence, but it's rooted in like negative emotions, you know. Um, so, uh, with this trope in mind, I kind of like uh, dug around a little bit, and I found like two comparisons, which I think are pretty cool. Uh, the first one is based in uh, Greek mythology. So, um, way back when, on like one of our earlier mythology segments, we had talked about Prometheus and how there was a comparison with Aule, the way that Aule created the dwarves. Uh, Prometheus created mankind out of clay. And the goddess Athena uh, granted mankind with intelligence or awareness. um, And together they had completed like the human race. So that was like on our previous segment. Now on this segment, there's like a bit of Feanor and Prometheus share common grounds. And um, I'm just going to start by by reminding you who Prometheus is. Um, He was a titan. So a titan is or was like uh, one of the primordial gods. So they came before the gods of Olympus. And when the gods of Olympus actually came to be, there was a a, a war between Zeus and the Titans, which Prometheus kind of avoided this war. He kind of like circumvented it. Uh, But eventually uh, he did enter in conflict with Zeus. So um, the myth of Prometheus is well he's mostly known for one creating mankind but secondly for stealing the holy fire of creation from the gods of olympus and bringing it down to humans so he gifted something that was not his to give and that's what triggered zeus's wrath that's why zeus went after him so prometheus kind of again on this on this trope he he rebelled against the laws and he did what he thought had to be done, which was to pass on uh, fire, let's say, um, to his creation who were mankind. And to punish him, the gods uh, tied him to a rock and an eagle was uh, sent to feed off his liver. 
um, throughout the day, and this for eternity. Okay? Nice, nice. Yeah. So talk That's about a big being liver. cursed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, during the day the bird feeds, and at night the liver reg- regenerates because the titan is immortal, right? So he never actually dies. Okay. That's a bad um, groundhog day, isn't it? Yeah, pretty bad, pretty bad. Uh, if you want to dig even deeper, like this myth goes back to like our Indo-European roots. So we're talking about like the cradle of civilization. And, you know, it's just something that's been part of our our, our cultural psyche <laughs> for a very long time. So this idea of like a god figure that steals something and gives it to humans. Okay. So um, what's the parallel with Fëanor? So... Both Prometheus and Fëanor are craftsmen. They both are associated with fire, and Fëanor uses fire to, you know, create his, um, <laughs> create his creations. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to create. <laughs> there you go. To create. Okay. Uh, both of them end up being eternally cursed for their actions. Right. Yeah. So Fëanor uh, gets the ultimate curse after the kinsling. And uh, in in this way, like, both characters kind of share, like, the same tropes. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. There is also, like, an echo of Fëanor or um, based on um, a story from the Poetic Edda. And this is a very special story because it's the only story in Norse mythology where there is an elf that is mentioned by name, <laughs> okay? So right. this this elf's name is Volund. And in the story of Volund, um, here, I'll just give you a little rundown and you can pick out, like, the similarities, okay? So Volund is an elf, and he starts uh, his life... He, he, the, the way that the story is introduced to us is that he is a craftsman and one day him and two of his buddies go out for a walk in the middle of winter they come to this frozen lake and they see these three gorgeous girls that have just finished like ice bathing okay (laughs) and these girls are surrounded (laughs) (laughs) or swedish girls i don't know but But the, the girls are, are, are slowly getting dressed again and they realize that there's bird feathers all around them and they realize that these three women are Valkyries because Valkyries have, um, if you want, they're shapeshifters and they can, they can turn, they can transform into, into, in this case, into swans. Okay. Wow. So the, the three men, uh, or in this case, the three fellows, uh, including Volun, um, take a wife so uh volan uh, is with his swan lady <laughs> for a while <laughs> until the swan lady decides to uh, head back into battle she's called back by odin uh, there is war going on and she's called back to the battlefield to choose the the slain uh warriors to ascend to valhalla so he loses his wife and he goes crazy and he is completely destroyed with grief and what happens is that he turns his grief into isolation and he just retreats and he finds solace in the creation of his beautiful jewels that he makes okay <laughs> sound familiar that's I mean, nuts i don't I don't, I don't I don't see where you're going with this may i you don't know yeah i know, I know. <laughs> let me let me organize my thoughts here okay so 
<laughs> so while he's in isolation, uh, there's like a nearby king that hears of Volun's uh, state of mind and he knows he's vulnerable and he sees an opportunity. So he sends his soldiers to capture Volun. So uh, the soldiers come in, they raid his house, they completely empty out all his coffers, they, they remove all the goods that he's created, and they maim Volun. So they actually cut his quads. <laughs> so they slice his quads so that he can no longer stand and he cannot escape. And they bring him on this little island in the middle of a lake, and the king tells him, well, from now on, you will make me the most beautiful jewelries ever, okay? So, Volun is very resentful of his situation, obviously, because every time he creates something, the king sweeps in and takes it away from him. So, slowly, slowly, he starts planning his revenge. And like Fanor, Volun is consumed by anger, hate, resentment, and he's also very skilled with his words, <laughs> okay? So he finds a way to trick the king's two sons um, onto the island, and he promises to show the sons, like, his treasures and how he goes about making his jewelry. And when the sons get there, he slays them, Okay. Okay. So he's basically destroyed the heirs of this king. Um, he also goes through the trouble, Volun goes through the trouble of impregnating the king's daughter, uh, therefore <laughs> completely trashing her reputation. Goes <laughs> through the so, trouble. <laughs> so, so now Volun has taken his ultimate um, uh, revenge on this king who, who uh, captured him. And unlike the way that... Uh, Fëanor's story ends, so Fëanor gets punished for rebelling and has to live with a curse. Volun actually ends up with the upper end by killing the king's uh, progeny and destroying the daughter. And once he's taken this revenge, Volun actually, it's described in this very obscure language, but Volun escapes and some translations are a little like... Uh, they, they can't agree on, on exactly how he escapes, but it just says that he flies away in a contraption that he's created himself. So there's all kinds of different <laughs> theories out there. So they're like, okay, so does this elf, like, does he have wings? Does he have, like, I don't know, like a spaceship? Like, you know, all these, like, crazy, like, out there theories. But um, the point is that he gets to escape the curse, and he himself has put a curse on his captor. Okay? So that's a little different there, but... Um. Isn't that a bit... Just to butt in, May. Yeah, go James, ahead. isn't that a little bit of a kind of Arendelle almost beating the, beating the, the curse that... No one can return to. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing was, as she was saying it actually, but you that know, flying the flying notion and everything. Yeah, and uh, well, it wouldn't surprise me if some of these parallels are purposefully drawn, or if, you know, yeah, if, if some of them are accidental. But it, 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 it lines up almost as well with the Arendel as as it does here. Um, yeah. So That's... as you can tell, the professor has uh, themes that come back over and over again. Eh? Definitely. That's so so. I, I love these. 
these bits that you do, mate. Because I, I, I'm always enlightened. I never know anything about these either. No, as I agree. I don't know. I don't know the poetic header, and I keep meaning to. Every time I hear you speak about them, I keep going to myself. Yeah, I need to look at that. I need to look at that. Um, the the parallels are well profound, aren't they? Yeah, and the poetic it is such a fun read, anyways, because it's it's full of like inappropriate stuff, <laughs> <laughs> which is which makes for a very entertaining read. <laughs> but <laughs> mental um, note: yeah. read the poetic edda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Gives you like a window into like medieval Europe. Uh, <laughs> it's just fascinating. It's 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 just amazing seeing the links, the connections. Um, and you know a direct sort of view of of where Tolkien was getting so many of his you know wonderful stories and ideas from. You know, but the 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 basic thing to remember is that all of these stories doesn't matter who the narrator is or what kind of spin they put on it. It it just comes down to the story of being human. That's what it is. It's all rooted in the the hardships or the misery or the happiness or the love. Yeah. That all these emotions that make us human, you know, that the things that drive us to act uh, for better or for worse. For sure. Yeah, no, you're right. Totally agree. Completely agree. Great stuff. Uh, where did we want to go from there? May, did we, did we let you finish? <laughs> Yes, I'm done. I, I know. So I know. Uh, I know. Ads cut you off very rudely there, without excusing himself, and just harsh, barged, just harsh. barged right in. Harsh. Um, listen, listen, you air hole. <laughs> ice hole. Ice hole. Ice hole. <laughs> <laughs> listen, you ice hole. <laughs> Uh, that's terrific, I'm very, guys. Uh, I'm very apologetic, May. I'm sorry for butting no worries. You'd be a great Canadian, what? Ads. Uh, be quiet. I'd be a great Canadian. Your apologies. <laughs> uh, oh, well, thanks for being here, everyone. If you're still here with us, boy, uh, that was a long haul, but we had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we got we to close up this fire, and we got to make the hike all the way back to uh, civilization, guys. But I really uh, appreciate you finding this time slot with me. May and Ads, thank you so much. Pleasure. It's been such good fun. Yeah, we're in the middle of the night for uh, May and I. It's one in the morning. Ads started this at four, and it's just after six now. So we will close up shop, and we will thank everybody for stopping by the Green Door podcast this week. Uh, If you haven't done so already, uh, please come by, like Ads said at the beginning of the show, and check out our Facebook group. Follow us along. Join us on Twitter, and share the podcast with your friends. Uh, We do this because we love talking Tolkien Uh, And we like doing it with you guys. And we'd love to interact with your friends and your family and anybody else who loves Tolkien. Um, The the most fun part of this really for us is the conversation that happens after uh, the recording is done. So uh, please share and enjoy uh, episode 13. Let's close it up. Uh, Ads, anybody you want to say goodbye to? Just the usual gang, really. I mean, I don't think I'll I'll, I'll mention, mention them all. Uh, but you know everyone in the Facebook group um, you know who you are you're all great Um, we love having you as part of sort of the Green Door family and um, we look forward to a really good year ahead of of great discussion and and hopefully having your ear May I know you've got to work uh, early I don't know if it's tomorrow morning you're working is it? No, no. You worked early. Was, you worked uh, early this morning, but you don't work tomorrow morning. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. So you can sleep in probably yeah. till the well, very late hour of seven seven a.m. or something. 
6.30, yeah, probably. Not, not bad. <laughs> uh, anybody you want to say goodnight to before we sign off? Um, well, to anybody who's, uh, like Ed's mentioned, that participates in anything that we do, we so appreciate it. I really appreciate it, your, your uh, response to the promo for season two that little video that we put together um, we had a lot of fun shooting it and just to see how engaged you were um, in responding to it that was great so thank you so much guys <laughs> and uh, don't hesitate to follow us on Instagram uh, on Twitter I believe and uh, we have well, I'll let you go ahead James and maybe plug that in or <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I'm kind of like stepping out of my boundary. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, check us out on Twitter at the Green Door Pod. <laughs> it is one in the morning, and uh, I'll let you. I'll let you guys sign off. Then uh, we'll start with you, May. This is May Kehela reminding you to stay curious. Okay, this is Ads saying, look out for us, especially at unlikely times. Good morning. Dear Hobbits. Ha, and I am James O'Flaherty reminding everybody to keep your feet and happy wandering. Special thank you to Nathan Mills from Beyond the Guitar and Harry Merle for their excellent intro and outro music. Enjoy. Oh, sorry, guys. Just to let you know, it's Helcaraxi, the way to say it. Ah. I'm on. I'm online, and there's like a Tolkien Gateway Network. I don't know what pronounce. It's Helcaraxi. Helcaraxi. Or Helcaraxi, because it, it it ends with S E H, like El, like just phonetically speaking. Helcaraxi. Helcaraxi. Ah, oh, damn it, May. Why'd you have to tell us the right way to say it? <laughs> sorry, sorry, I don't know. Maybe one person inside that Facebook group is going to say, you know, Hell you can't say it right, you know. Like. You know, I got to be honest with you. I can't believe we have not been called out more for all the f- shit we say wrong. And, <laughs> like, seriously. <laughs>